First on film and entertainment. How is everybody? I tell you something, it's been another big week after we've had Oppenheimer, we've had Barbie, we've had all sorts of discussions about whether Barbie is a movie just for feminists or whether it's a movie for the whole world. It puts women into perspective. We've got the Matildas giving everybody a run for their money in terms of the the visibility, the most watched television programs. It's actually quite great, isn't it, Jackie Hamilton? Oh, loving it. And it's got people going to the cinema, which is a great story in itself. Well, I, during the week, I, I sent you an article that was, I don't know whether you've read it yet, with regards... Yes, I, I, had, I did read it, and I had already read it. It's doing the rounds. It's doing the rounds. This is about Barbie, because there was... A, a, was it a critic in the United States who sort of panned it, and then this was a sort of answer to all of that? Perhaps you can... Well, you, you've read it more recently than I have. Perhaps you can enunciate in a little bit of detail what the article is saying. Well, well, she covered a wide area, but basically basically ends up saying, what's wrong with a, you know, with a kind of movie like this that throws out ideas about women in society and the changes and that, and, you know, why has it upset some men of a certain ilk, if you like? Yeah. Well, but, and look, there's no doubt in my mind that we are going to see a sequel. I, I Do you have any doubt about that at all? I, I mean, it's too, the studios would be salivating. It's made so much money. It's, you know, in the top, what, 20 or so films ever released now in terms of people flocking and there's there's groups of people who are going and it's just, it's wonderful. I, I was starting to get really concerned after COVID that the numbers are not going to go back to the cinema. I Mind you, it, it does take these sorts of movies or blockbusters because I think a lot of people are opting for the, the convenience of streaming, but there's nothing quite like my favourite cinema, IMAX, the experience that we had there seeing Oppenheimer was just n- next level as far as I'm concerned. What do you think, Peter? I mean, uh, it, were you concerned that uh, cinema going public was not going to go back after COVID in the numbers that it was before? Actually, I wasn't. I thought there was still a strong appetite for people to go back into cinemas, especially to experience uh, big screens and good sound. and uh, And that certainly is happening, and it just needed... Uh, a number of very strong films to encourage people to go back into the cinema. Are you somebody who has streaming services at home or not? Yes, I do. I do have Netflix and a few others. So, so what about you, Greg? Are you somebody who just goes to the cinema or you, you have your, your Netflix as well? Uh, I, uh, I have Netflix and I have Foxtel. That's about it. I can't be bothered with all the other streaming services because you just don't have time or the money to um, waste on them. Well, okay. I've got to go to the cinema to see my films. Yeah. Well, let's talk about Netflix. Do you do you think you make good use of it or not? Not really. No, I I did during lockdown when you couldn't go to the cinemas, but um, more recently I'll, I pick and choose what I watch. And Peter, you go and see all three hundred and fifty films at the Melbourne International Film Festival. So when have you got tired of watching Netflix? <laughs> Very rarely, I must admit. I mean, I already cancelled my Fox Still. Uh, subscription because it was just horrendously expensive and I was not using it. Uh, and Netflix might be next. Now, Jackie, uh, you don't have time for any of this, do you? Because you're, you're walking your dog 17 times a day. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I walk my dog. No, no, Everyone hey, no, no, no we've got, yeah, I, I've known all these dog walkers, but nobody compares to you. Uh, your dog is, let's say, angles to try and go out several times a day. Is that true? 
Well, let's just say that at his last checkup, he's 16 years old. And yeah. at his last checkup, the vet declared that his heart was the heart of an athlete. <laughs> Why? Why am I not Which I was very, I was very impressed to hear that. I... Well, I mean, to keep up with you, who does what, about five classes a day as well, I, it, 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 your dog's trying to keep up. And what's that in human years? 16 times seven. My golly. Yes. And the balancing that out with going to the, balancing that with going to the, going to as many films as I possibly can does sometimes test, test the, um, test the 24 hours in the day. Okay. Well, look, let's, let's get on with things on J88FM. Wes Anderson. Now, some people absolutely adore his movies. Some are totally perplexed by his films and others say, no, no, give me something that makes more sense. So where do we stand on Greg Anderson? Uh, Greg Anderson. Wes, and he used to be a footballer. Wes Anderson, I, I'm I'm a great fan of his and I really look forward to seeing what he's going to dish up next. And uh, the, the Budapest Hotel, wow, that was quite some movie. Asteroid City is the one we're going to be talking about today. Uh, Peter, are you a fan or not? Very much so. He's such a distinctive filmmaker who has uh, carved out his own niche in terms of the way he explores story. I, I'm very impressed by him. Well, I mean, he's confounding at times. There's no question about that, Greg. Do you like movies that you make you think, or do you like films that spell everything out? Uh, I am able to all sorts of different films, um, Alex, yeah. I do like ones that make you think, um, but I, I like also ones that spell everything out and you can just sit back, relax, and let it wash over you. Um, and so are you a Wes Anderson fan? Uh, a bit hit and miss one anyway. I like some of his stuff, but some of it has left me a little bit cold and um, scratching my head. Well, I'm curious, Jackie, are you, are you of the, are you, you, you are fawning Wes Anderson or are you somebody who also, like Greg, can uh, take him or leave him? Oh, fawning hardly even hardly oh. even touches the way I feel about Like, he's a world unto himself. And um, I think that it's what, uh, what Peter just said. It's the originality of it. You know, they can churn out films, uh, you know, for, on based on old comic book heroes or, you know, biographies or, you know, uh, romance or that. And he just doesn't fit those categories. And he's uh, has such an individual style. And he's uh, he's a man of he's like an art gallery in his films, and so distinctive. I just think he's wonderful. Mind you, the stories don't always come out down a straight narrative. No, that's that's absolutely so. <laughs> it's funny having seen this film in the last few days. I last night, I, not night before actually, went to the opening night of a Melbourne Theatre Company production. A couple of um, short plays. One was forty-five minutes. The other was twenty-five, and. There is a British playwright, I'm not sure whether any of you have heard of her, but she's incredible. Her name's Carol Leslie Churchill. Are you familiar, Jackie, or not? No, no. No, okay. She is now, I reckon she'd be what, about 84 years of age, and she's known as just the most, uh, probably the one of the leading playwrights in the world, and again, you've really got to work with her material. I, I sort of... It's up to it's open to interpretation. I read an article about her, and she never tells. She she just allows the audience to interpret as they will. And I sat through the first play, and I I must admit I was scratching my head a lot. And and it's, it's that sort of thing. And yet 
I really admired what she did. She and she sort of she juxtaposed four women who would have to be seventy plus sitting reflecting on their lives. One of whom had inadvertently murdered her husband, with the state of the world having gone into decline, and it juxtaposed one with the other. Uh, scenes lasting sometimes a few minutes, sometimes a few seconds, blackouts between them, loud sounds, quite alarming sounds in between. And I, I kind of thought about this in the context. Now, it was very interesting. I thought about this in the context of Wes Anderson, and I sort of thought saw her as a bit of an equivalent, if you like, in the uh, in the creative space. Asteroid City is M-rated. It's 105 minutes in length. And I, I do I honestly say it is creative, but it's also confounding. And I wouldn't have expected anything less. He's quite the eclectic mind. And um, it's set in 1955. Television host is introducing this imaginary drama called Asteroid City. And the, the focus at first is on a noted playwright called Conrad Earp, played by Edward Norton. But that focus, well, it's hardly engaging entertainment. So very soon we're being introduced to the first read-through of Conrad Earp's latest work. And you've got a junior astronomy convention held in a fictional desert town. And into that setting comes Augie Steenbeck, played by Jason Schwartzman, who's a favourite of Wes Anderson's in terms of his movies. And Augie Steenbeck arrives with his four children. They include his brainiac son, Woodrow, played by Jake Ryan, and Woodrow's three strong-willed younger sisters. When the family car breaks down, Augie calls his father-in-law, Stanley Zack, and that's a role filled by Tom Hanks, uh, calls him for help. His father-in-law doesn't really care for Augie all that much and, and can't believe that his son-in-law hasn't told his children that their mother, his wife, has passed away. And Augie has with him, in, I should say, a less than appropriate vessel, his wife's ashes. And as events unfold in Asteroid City, Augie meets and falls for a famous but cynical actress called Midge Campbell, Scarlett Johansson. But the real kicker comes when an alien arrives at this convention and departs with, uh, I'll call it a sample, resulting in everyone being quarantined. So that, that's the, the obtuse nature of this particular synopsis for Asteroid City. Heaps of fun. Uh, I, I reckon you just need to sit back and, and savour Anderson forging his quirky form of magic on screen. It's uh, it's a film that's resplendent with actors who I reckon they're having a, a ball. They really are. Anderson's dry humour, stories by him and Roman Coppola, or Coppola, is all over this particular production. It is at times difficult to follow, but it's captivating. You, you dare not look away because you might miss another Perla, and there are plenty of those. I thought that Jason Schwartzman and Scarlett Johansson were the standouts. Their scenes together across neighbouring windows really lit up the screen. And I also kept a lookout for Margot Robbie, knowing that she was in this film. And when her turn came, she doesn't have a big role, but uh, it, it, she didn't disappoint. And and Brian Cranston, I thought, also did an earnest job as the TV host during the black and white era. And so too Edward Norton as the, the playwright, the Asteroid City playwright. Uh, interesting to see Tom Hanks in this contrary judgmental space as Augie's disapproving father-in-law. So, look, apart from all of this, there's some rather important observations to make about the atom bomb in, in Asteroid City. And 
not surprisingly, those thoughts are delivered in an entirely different style to Oppenheimer. I thought the production set, uh, the production design, the set decoration, they were really delightful throwbacks to a bygone era. I, I couldn't get enough of their playful nature. So I came out of this rather puzzled but pleased. That's how I would describe it. What about you, Peter? Absolutely love this film, especially the uh, incredible cast and the distinctive approach that Anderson takes to shooting the film using two aspect ratios, using academy ratio in black and white and widescreen colour. It's interesting to note this film was shot during COVID and uh, the issue was that uh, it had been delayed a a fair bit and eventually they shot the film in Spain uh, near Madrid um, and also uh, some of the interiors uh, were shot at uh, Studio Babelsberg in Berlin. This is a really interesting, clever space journey, existential, humanistic sort of story that, uh, yes, it is um, somewhat uh, difficult to fathom, but once you sit through it, once you let it wash over you, once you understand the characters, the storylines, and the I think the positive aspect to the film, especially when the alien arrives, who wants that meteorite, I, I thought there was so much going for this film. I really, really loved it. And uh, I was very impressed. And it's good to see another music score from Alexandra Desplat, a uh, a composer who's written so many great music scores who uh, deserves an Oscar at last, I think. Great film. Did you like, did you like the representation of the alien, the sort of stick figure? <laughs> I liked it. It was quite different and unusual. And uh, and almost throwback. benign. Yeah, a throwback. Uh, it certainly was. Uh, Jackie, the production values. Uh, I I just you know I I couldn't get enough of the, the way it was lit. I I I thought you know I was on a cartoon set. It was really something. It's it's absolutely beautiful. And those pastel that mm. pastel palette. He's uh, which he 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 Wes Anderson uses in in. A, a lot of his films, I don't know, certainly not all, but as he used in others, like Moonrise Kingdom had a little bit of that going on too. Um, it's, a, it's a little bit vintage um, and it's absolutely beautiful to look at. It's a real world itself. And it, I, I left feeling like I'd been walking through an art gallery, really. Uh, yeah. the, the shots are held for a long time and the way they're, they're, they're kind of symmetrical and the colour... The, Colours are so important to him. It really is a very visual film, which works in well with the, you know, the whole emotion of, you know, being whimsical and quirky and, you know, having these little stories within stories, some of which go somewhere and some of which don't. And, you know, just little hints of romance and hints of retro and uh, it it all comes together in in a really beautiful package. But overall, it really is a very visual film. I kind of wonder, with Grand Budapest Hotel and with movies like this, be fascinating to see the storyboarding that goes on, presuming that it does before a film like this. Greg, have you? I mean, you've been to various exhibitions and things. I I reckon it'd be fascinating to get a bit of an insight in into this this great filmmaker's mind, would it not? Uh yeah, he certainly has a, a distinctive mind, and his films have a distinctive look and a unique feel to them. And you've already talked about the unique production design here, the colour palette scheme that give the film a distinctive look. 
there's an artificial quality to it, I thought, the setting of um, Asteroid City there as well, which kept me at a bit of a distance there, I thought. And the structure um, about the playwright at the start and setting up this play and then cutting backwards and forwards there, um, initially it sort of was a little bit of a turn-off for me. I sort of I just wanted to go straight into the story there. And you referenced the alien there. They credited it as Jeff Goldblum. You wouldn't have known unless they knew wow. Jeff Goldblum. But what a superb cast. I thought Oppenheimer had a great cast. This film leaves it for dead with the number of actors who come on. Um, some have very small roles and not a lot to do, but some of them are re- leave their mark there. I thought Tom Hanks was really good there as a curmudgeonly grandfather there. Jason Schwartzman, always good in a uh, Anderson film. Um, and Scarlett Johansson was good as the actress there, I thought. Um, but some of the dialogue is just... Typically dull, droll delivery of the his oblique dialogue there. You sort of find yourself having to listen carefully because, as you said, Alice, I think it was, you might miss some of it. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, very, yeah. very dialogue-driven. But Anderson is something of an acquired taste. Those who are on his wavelength will certainly appreciate this one. Yeah, I agree. So what would you have given it out of 10? Asteroid City, M-rated. Uh, what, what's uh, the score from Greg King? Look, I'm going to give it a six, a six and a half. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I think you'll be the low. I preferred um, the Grand Budapest Hotel. I thought that was um, probably a highlight of his career. Yeah, oh, look, I think that that's probably, I mean, I'm not sure about the other two. Would you agree? I, I, that, that's probably my best uh, Wes Anderson film too. What What do you think, Peter? Uh, oh, sorry, I didn't know you were uh, true to me. Uh, look, I, I think it's a quite a different film in some respects in terms of story. Uh, I think it's just as good as Grand Budapest Hotel, and uh, uh, I, I, I love the use of camera movement and so on. I, I give it nine out of ten. Really? Wow. Yes. Okay. That's that's a very high mark for 105 minutes. So, what about you? Uh, and and not talking about the length, more more the creativity involved. Jackie. Uh, yes. I um, my favourite was Anson film is Moonrise Kingdom. Actually, oh, okay. I just yeah, Budapest didn't get me quite as much, but anyway. Um, for um, Asteroid City, I gave eight out of ten. Yeah, and I gave it a seven and a half. You are on Jair. Please continue to listen to us and contribute. Only for fifty-four bucks a year, and you can become a member and keep supporting the radio station for all it's worth. Now, I want to move on to. I mean, it's kind of interesting because when you've seen one Dracula film, you kind of think you've seen them all, but everyone's got a slight bent or twist. And this certainly does. Uh, it's called Dracula Voyage of the Dementor. It's 118 minutes. It's MA rated. And and you would have to describe this as atmospheric. It's in, in enormously atmospheric from the get-go to the end. And it's only based on one chapter. It is based on a chapter from the Bram Stoker classic no- novel uh, that was written in 1897. And it concerns the terrifying story of a merchant ship called the Demeter, uh, D-E-M-E-T-E-R, chartered uh, to carry private cargo, turned out to be 50 unmarked wooden crates, from Carpathia to London. You've got a a rather honourable captain, Captain Elliot, played by Liam Cunningham, has decided that this is going to be his last voyage. He's been at sea for a long time and he is ready to retire to Ireland. Now, he has anointed his first mate, called Wojciech, played by David Dasmalchian, to assume his post. 
and joining the crew in in uh, this voyage, which shouldn't take too many days, is a well-spoken Cambridge-educated doctor. Virtually has to talk himself onto the ship. His name is Clemens, played by Corey Hawkins. And at first, the ship makes steady progress. In fact, so much so that everybody's in line for the monetary bonus that's going to come with their early arrival in port, and they're discussing how they're going to spend the money. Then they discover a stowaway, a stowaway called Anna, played by Aisling Franciosi. And she is at death's door. She really is. And her discovery changes everything. So her survival is squarely in the hands of the medico that I mentioned, Clemens, who arranges ongoing blood transfusions while they are obviously on board the ship. And it's a portent of what's to follow. As for centuries, Anna's village has been plagued by the bloodthirsty Dracula. So, well, that means that all on the ship are doomed. And they're stalked each night by a merciless presence. And when the Demeter finally does make it to England, it is as a charred, derelict wreck. In Bram Stoker's book, the ship's final voyage is written as an excerpt in excerpt in a daily newspaper. And the screenwriters here have adapted that and they've run with it. So we, the audience, watches one by one. Those aboard the Demeter are picked up and picked off. That That's kind of what happens. And what, what's the Agatha Christie novel uh, that, um, that may have renamed it, but about the 10, ten Indians or whatever? What, what's that ten book called? Indians. Yeah, 10 Little Indians. I was thinking about or that. Then, or then there are none. Yeah, and then there are none. I was thinking very much about that while I was watching this movie. So Dracula himself grows from this grey shadowy figure to this giant flying vulture with back wings. And the story, again, it's it's funny, I don't normally talk this much about production design, but I thought the production and sound design were mighty on this, really enhanced the story. They lay the foundations of the ordeal that is going to be faced by those aboard the vessel. And I very much got what I anticipated I would from Dracula Voyage of the Demeter. That includes a little detail about those on the ship. Not a lot, but you get to uh, know a few backstories. Some are rough and ready. Others are decent. But, of course, the real story is their predetermined fate when they step on board. And there are lots of people, lots of um, potential crew who basically opt out because uh, the portent of doom is there for all to see. A great deal of attention is focused on the Doctor and his desire to make sense of the world. Not just the world, actually, the also the entity that's plaguing the ship. So Corey Hawkins comes across as a respectable man of science who has copped a, a bad rap because of his colour. He's a black man. Trust grows between the Doc and Anna, whom he saves, as the voyage unfolds. And Aisling Franciosi brings a greater sense of understanding than the others to her representation of the castaway. The, the captain runs a very tight ship and He's an experienced navigator. Nevertheless, he's way out of his depth here. So Liam Cunningham well captures his transition as fear consumes all. And there's curiosity and desire, a uh, desire to please, actually. They're the hallmarks of his eight-year-old grandson, Toby, played by Woody Norman. There's also a very dark edge to David Dasmelchian as Wojciech. He's a Polish orphan, spent his entire life at sea, regards the Demeter as his one true home. So, look, it does have impact, Dracula Voyage of the Meta, but but few, if any, surprises. And at nearly two hours, I mean, it is a very long movie. 
for it's a long sit and it could have benefited in my opinion from some prudent pruning nevertheless the norwegian director andre Ovredal has captured the, the somber mood the frightening essence of the dracula story and i suppose that's what it's all about so that's dracula voyage of the demeter rated ma what what were your thoughts about it greg king i quite enjoyed this for much of the time um, did you get anything you didn't expect? I've got to ask you that because I did. Not really. Um, it's interesting how they've taken the short chapter from Bram Stoker's Dracula novel um, and it stretched it out. Here's almost a breaking point with the backstory of the crew of the Demeter and um, what happened to them on that voyage to England when they were carrying a coffin with um, Dracula's body in there. I like the way that you only saw the character of Dracula or Nosferatu um, early on in small fleshy glimpses that heightened the suspense and ten tension with his character, and then you see him in his full-blown horror boyness towards the end of the film there. Um, the gloomy lighting created an oppressive atmosphere that heightened the claustrophobic feel of the film there, and I like to you reference him, I like to carry Corey Hawkins as a doctor there who values science over superstition and tries to rationalise what's going on the ship there. Uh, you mentioned David Gasmalchian there as the second in charge there. I thought he was quite good with the role. And Liam Cunningham, Cunningham was also quite good, bought some gravitas as the captain there. And you feared for the safety of young Toby there, as you mentioned, yeah. in danger. Often um, horror films do not do nasty things to kids, but in this one, he sort of threatened a little bit there. The production design was quite good, the gloomy lighting. The storm and the claustrophobic setting all worked for me. Um, yeah, I agree. It was probably just a little bit too long. But otherwise, no, this was quite good. Mm. Now, Jackie, you, you don't normally like horror. So have you uh, seen this or not? Oh, no. With the genre of horror, Alex, I did a little bit of reading of it beforehand. And I thought, no, no. no okay. Let's talk about that one. Yeah, I can understand. I can understand. We don't. We don't want you to get, get the heebie-jeebies and not sleep for nights on end. I do, I do want to sleep at night, yep. Exactly. Now, now, Peter, do you sleep well at night in, in walls that are so thin that uh, that motor vehicles, uh, one 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 car driving past sounds like a, a Mack truck? Uh, what, about, <laughs> what about you? Do you do you get uh, scared by horror or you embrace it? I embrace it. I, I like all genres, and uh, this is a good example of a, a, a well-made horror movie. It's interesting to note that the Nosferatu film, that was the unofficial 1922 remake um, uh, or adaptation of uh, Bram Stoker's uh, chapter, um, starts off with that voyage, with that uh, ship arriving, um, uh, and, um, and obviously with uh, lots of portent about Dracula being on board. Mm -hmm. So I, I like that. I think that corresponding uh, sort of aspect was very good. The other aspect of the film is I had a chance to speak to uh, one of the lead actors in the film who's an Australian actor um, called uh, Nikolai Nikolaev. And he told me about the, the whole filming process and how they used very clever special effects at Studio Barbersberg in Berlin, where all the interiors were shot. Um, yeah, yeah. In fact, that studio is becoming a go-to for so many producers uh, uh, and films. It's incredible. Very busy studio. But anyway, they uh, spent a long time uh, shooting the film. I think that he said it was about three weeks um, when they were in Berlin shooting the film uh, on this makeshift sh uh, ship. 
and uh, getting the effects right and uh, getting all the uh, the cutaways right and all that sort of thing. So it, it's very impressive. And the, of course, the other location of the film is Malta. And I uh, I saw that they used the uh, the main harbour or jetty area of Malta um, for the uh, launch of the ship, etc. So the production values of this film are very high, even though it was affected by, by COVID. It's it's a, a, a very strong, well-made horror movie. Yes, it's not necessarily totally original insofar as we know to some extent where it's going, but that doesn't matter because it, it, um, it does it well uh, considering that uh, it's working with material that audiences may be familiar with. Uh, yeah. The Norwegian director... Andre Uvredal uh, has done a great job in uh, setting the scene uh, and uh, and and getting the atmosphere right. It's interesting in publicity after the film was released uh, or was uh, just about to be released. He said, "Well, basically, my film is aliens on a ship." Yeah, uh, I read that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it is, well, it is. I mean, Greg made the point, and it's a it's a good one. That transition of Dracula, I think is better than most Dracula movies. I, because initially it's just this, um, you get this darting across the screen. You can't even tell what it is. Then it becomes a gray, this sort of gray mass somewhere. Then you get to see the teeth. I, I really liked that transition. I thought that worked very well. Yes, it did. It did. Now, overall, it was very well filmed. Uh, I didn't, uh, I wasn't concerned about the running time at all. It had to take its Really? Time. I'm surprised. I'm surprised though because uh, you you kind of know what's happening, and you, I, I I suppose the challenge here for any director is well how do you give it some sense of freshness? And I think that was done with the atmospherics more than anything else. I think partly it was the atmospherics, partly it's character development. Uh, all of the characters were pretty well developed. Um, the uh, everyone on the ship, and uh, they weren't just used as throwaways, but as important cogs in the wheel uh, of uh, trying to get this ship um, to port. So, look, I was very impressed by this film. I think it's a very good uh, horror film and uh, well-made. So, score out of 10 from you for uh, Dracula Voyage of the Demeter, 118 minutes MA rated. Yep, I definitely gave it a 7 out of 10. Mm, I gave it a 7 as well, Greg. 7 out of 10 for me as well. Well, there you go. Okay, Fantastic. Uh, uniform agreement. Nice. Let us turn on Jair 88FM to another movie, which, um, look, I mean, I suppose that I, I didn't know what to expect from Chevalier. Uh, look, I, I enjoyed it. I wondered whether another director may have given it even more bites. I, I, I like, yeah, as I say, I, I like the concept, but I, I wasn't totally sold on it. Before I go into detail, I'm curious with the rest of you. Jackie, what did you think? Yes, I agree. It was all about the looks and I just didn't feel the substance and I don't think I'm really invested in it. I don't think I believed in it. Yeah. I, I mean, it's a, it's fascinating because I, I didn't realise that Chevalier is a title, so I, I learnt in terms of what that all meant. Uh, what about you, Greg? Did you did you also feel? I mean, I didn't think it was a terrible film, but I I was somewhat disappointed. And you? I enjoyed it to a point there. I thought I learned I thought it was a fascinating study of this guy, uh, um, son of a slave, 
um, sent to Paris to um, yeah. improve his education, um, became a bit of a prodigy and then gets caught up in the revolutionary fervor there. I liked the production design. I thought it was good. I thought the opening sequence when we first met him when he was playing against Mozart on stage, brought yeah. it up the stage it was a great opening scene there. I thought the um, guy who played, played him, um, Calvin Harrison Jr., had a lot of charisma. It was very... Um, mm. I, I just didn't think... I suppose... I wanted a bit more nuance, uh, maybe. That that I liked it. I don't don't get me wrong. I'd recommend it, but I suppose I anticipated something more or something a little bit more refined. What about you, Peter? Just your instinct on this. Well, my my first instinct was: is this a biopic of Maurice Chevalier? Um, so I was glad to see that it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> It, uh, uh, and it's based on a true story. So, uh, look, I went with it. I, I thought it was pretty good overall. I just wish it was in French because it would have led to more credence to the film. Yeah, you've said this to me before as well. And I, it, it's it's always a challenge, isn't it? If you're representing somebody whose first language isn't necessarily English and, and you're putting actors there that speak in English, yeah, it opens that... that uh, that window, shall we say? Look, it's a it's hundred and eight minutes. It's M rated, and it, it's a film that pulls no punches. It sets out to push buttons, and and it certainly does that. And it's set in eighteenth century France. Story of Joseph Bologna, born in seventeen forty five on the island of Guadalupe in the Caribbean. It was the the son of a sixteen year old Senegalese slave called Nanon, and a wealthy French plantation owner so there you got the no-no straight away but um, anyway as a child his father the plantation owner sent him to an academy to study music mathematics literature and also fencing and he excelled Joseph Bologna excelled he became a virtuoso violinist quite the ingenious composer and a champion swordsman and the French queen Marie Antoinette recognised his genius, gave him the historic title, and this is where what I learnt, Chevalier in 1762. So for a time, he, he was actually one of the most charismatic and unexpected members of Antoinette's inner sanctum. But the problem, of course, was that he was a man of colour, and that simply wasn't acceptable. At the time, his appointment outraged many, and uh, appointment as Chevalier, and, and the cards were forever stacked against him. Now, despite all of that, he, he rose to higher claim. But there was all there was always a higher power or higher powers in general waiting to tear him down. A star-crossed love affair with a married and gifted singer certainly did not help his cause, I should mention that. And so it is that Chevalier the movie is inspired by the remarkable true life story of Joseph Bologna. Filled with many moving parts, racism entitlement, arrogance, just to name three, written by Stephanie Robinson. And the language used is deliberately vitriolic and, as I indicated, intended to fire up audiences. Its hate-filled tone is particularly unpalatable, but it's important to understand the antipathy of the era. He was forever swimming against the tide, as some would never accept him. Simple as that. And Greg referenced Kelvin Kelvin Harrison Jr. He comfortably straddles the requirements of that role. Bologna knows how talented he is. In fact, he he has tickets on himself. He's also a black man in a white world. 
Samara Weedy, I, I, I thought, well, she filled the, the part of a caged bird, um, desperate to break free. Marie Josephine and uh, Bologna's brief interlude ignores societal constraints, but it's really only a matter of time before, well, reality, harsh reality intervenes. Lucy Boynton, she's a queen under intense pressure, will inevitably buckle to accepted practice. Martin Sokus is, is quite ruthless as the Marquis, Marie Josephine's husband, whose word is deed. And then there's Minnie Driver. She she plays the scorned songstress La, La Gumard, who, who knows which side her bread is buttered. Many of the sets, the settings and the costumes are sumptuous. That really looks very, very nice. You know, this is a period drama, no question about it at all. They're the work of a production designer called Karen Murphy, costume designer Oliver Garcia, and a set decorator called Lottie Senna. So plaudits to them. And the cinematography, I thought, was also very, very good, quite triumphant for Jess Hall. The director is Stephen Williams, and to me, it so Chevalier really chooses not to dig deeply into its harrowing subject matter. It, it's, to me, a, a tabloid representation of shameful times, Jackie. Yes, um, and I was worried about, if, if it's such a good story, and it is a good story, about yeah. a, amazing yeah. story about, about this man um, who was... A, High achiever, highly accomplished in everything he turned his hand to, and, and being because it stood out because he was a man of colour. Why make all the adjustments to actual historical fact when the story itself was going to be so amazing anyway? So once you sort of saw and suspected, and I later read about the things that were not accurate, um, you kind of feel sceptical about the whole thing. So I took in as a, a period drama, almost as a fanciful story in some parts of it. And it, it had an unreal feeling for me. It fake. It was just a movie, um, but lovely to look at, um, adequate acting, uh, but nothing that blew me away there. But it's interesting, Jackie, because when you, this is an important consideration for any filmmaker and any dramatist, to be honest, if you read a book, and there's often a lot more detail in a book than there would be in a movie because of you, you've got more time, arguably. If somebody just sees the film or just sees the play or whatever, and they're never going to read the, the novel or whatever it might be, you believe what you see. Now, is that dangerous? I mean, that's reality, but is that dangerous? Because that oh. they've sort of rewritten history in a sense. Oh, well, it's not dangerous in this aspect because what's the outcome going to be um a, a good film will inspire you to actually go and read further about it in depth and um find out that but honestly, you know that i don't think many people will do that do you honestly well it's a bit removed from us today you know it's a it's a historical piece set yeah. piece and i think also in the way it was presented the you know, the uh, it, it was there was kind of a flatness to the direction of it. It was doing the doing the historical drama by numbers. It was there, there was nothing blowing me out of the water about it that made me feel excited. Um, yeah, well, I mean, I suppose I, I I was a bit more excited than you were, but I you know I also, as I said, I I, I just thought it was a a glossy version of something that could have it could have dealt or delved into a bit of the detail more. I mean, it would have made it a longer film, I suppose. So I, 
I can't have it both ways. Uh, Greg, did you uh, see a lot to like in Chevalier? I liked it. Um, it made me go away. I want to learn a little bit more about the true story behind it all. And as Sandy pointed out, they're taking a lot of liberties with um, the facts now. But that often happens with these biopics for dramatic purposes there. But as I said before, I like the production design. I like the story and I like the character and what he went through there and how he sort of became fell from being one of the toasts of Paris because of his musical prodigy there to falling out of favour because of the colour of his skin and um, somehow disappointing Marie Antoinette there and then took up the uh, revolutionary fervour that was happening in the streets there. And I like that contrast between the sort of opulence of Paris and the um, poverty of the streets there, which we came across a couple of times there. But I thought Calvin Harrison Jr. was a really great charismatic performer brought the characters to life um, and fit the part perfectly. And I agree, Martin Cossacks there was um, quite nice, good as the villain of the piece, so to speak, there. He often plays villains quite well there. Yeah, 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 yeah. I know. Well, got that sneering quality to him there as well. But I thought the costume, the music, the production design, all, all were fabulous. Oh, I'm pleased to hear that. What, what about you, Peter? Do you have favourable thoughts or otherwise? Uh, reasonably favourable thoughts, uh, apart from the the language issue, which uh, I thought, okay, I, I can go with that. Um, it, uh, talking about biopics, I would like to see any film that is an absolutely 100% accurate representation of the story that it is telling. It, it doesn't happen. Film, uh, narrative film is an adaptation. It always will be. I mean, how many people are going to see Barbie and expecting it to be a documentary? So, <laughs> oh, no, but what I'm saying is that history is often rewritten anyway in books and its inter- interpretation. So, but here, often characters are combined. I mean, that's what happens because, of course, and the nature of this means that often history is rewritten or perceived by what by popular culture, right? And and that's what we're that's what I'm talking about here because I'm not sure how many people are really students of history. Right, and it's fascinating if you think about it in the real world. You've got the Japanese will write their history one way, the Germans will write their history one way, the Russians will write their history one way, and you know we we're not naive enough to think the way that we represent things in Australia or England or the US is the way the world sees it. That it would be far far more convenient, and I dare say we'd have less wars and less conflict if everybody perceived things in the same way. So I suppose. You know, the, the propaganda machine is alive and well in the real world, so why shouldn't it be on, in movies? Because obviously behind all of this is money and and um, very few people want to put out films that don't make money, let's be honest. Exactly. So it's all, always going to be a commercial proposition and it will always be what works best dramatically uh, in terms of storytelling. So I thought with Chevalier that, that was fine. Uh, I, I went with that. And I think Jackie said that people are much more inclined to do research or to find out more information. We are much more media literate than mm. we used to be. And uh, certainly from schools um, that are teaching um, young people to be media literate, to not accept anything uh, without question, all that sort of thing, I think that's terrific. Anyway, so Chevalier, uh, it's interesting that uh, Joseph Bologna's music was meant to be lost for so long. So they finally discovered uh, a long piece of music 
uh, and that was able to be used as a, a significant part of the film, which is great to see. So, uh, and obviously his musical heritage is now very important and they're obviously doing more work to find more of his music. I like Chevalier. I think it was reasonably well done. Uh, it's dramatically, it worked well. Martin Chokas, as always, is very good. Uh, Lucy Boynton as Marie Antoinette. What a strange um, characterization of Marie Antoinette, who just walked the streets and, uh, and just had uh, a very open sort of relationship with the people. That's not what historically we are told, but that's fine. Uh, it's, a, it's an, again, a dramatic interpretation. Overall, I, I like the film. Oh, yeah, okay. So that's kind of a bit, a bit lukewarm. Let's start with you then, Peter. A score out of 10? Yep, I give it six out of 10. Mm-hmm. Greg? Uh-huh. Six and a half? Okay. Jackie, I'll be interested in this. I, 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 let me see if I can predict uh, somewhere in the six, six range as well. Absolutely on a six, yes. Yeah. It's more for the look of it. And just to add to um, Peter's comment, it, I mean, if everything in a historical uh, drama or, or film is real, that's a documentary. But with this, when you're, when you're twisting actual facts and actually presenting things that apparently, according to, actually didn't happen, such as the very dramatic opening scene of this in a violin duel with Mozart that apparently actually didn't happen. Why? You know, it, 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 to me, like, the what I'm saying is the story was amazing enough without having to invent an embellish. But, but hang on, but, but, but Jackie, Greg said it was a particularly poignant opening scene. It really dragged him in. Now, so that, that's your answer. It didn't happen. Yeah, I, I still thought it was a great opening scene, especially with the oh, I agree. Mozart. I agree that it didn't happen. And if something in a, what's what's intended to be a um, representation of a historical um, story about an actual person based on truth, um, there's enough there. Surely there was enough in, in this man's life to put on the screen without actually inventing parts of his life. Now, all right, we, we are going to, the, the other movie I want to talk about today, I'm going to save to next week. It's called Gran Turismo, which also opened on Thursday. Cause I, I wanted to talk about one other thing, Jackie, with you in particular, but also the others. Uh, I saw a play and, you and I were having a chat only the other night about this in terms of the real life and, and the horrible situation again in terms of the way the treatment of women, the relationships and so forth and and and, and what can go wrong. And I saw a play that I wanted to mention called Love With No Remorse. Now, unfortunately, today, Sunday is the last day you can see it. If you get the chance, it may be worth seeing. It's at the meat market stables in North Melbourne. And even with the best will in the world, the path to finding and sustaining the love of one's life is often paved with potholes. And you've got a situation here where everything starts off really, really well, and there's a great deal of um, positivity, and then things go sour. And it's actually set in uh, amongst the Arabic community. Now, you've got a couple of younger sisters, a, a, a lady, then you've got um, you've got an older sister, whose name is Sahar, played by Celine Corey. She's 29 years of age. She's smart. She's gregarious. She studied medicine, dropped out after a couple of years, and the reason actually for that becomes a, a pivotal plot point. She now works as a pharmacy assistant. She, she's gone from second-year medicine 
to working in a pharmacy. She's yet to meet Mr. Wright, but then Isaac, played by Emmanuel Eos Machitas, this smooth-talking lawyer, steps into her life. And the connection between them is, is palpable, both, as I mentioned, from Arab backgrounds, although his parents are well-to-do. Hers are not. Cracks start to appear in the relationship just before they marry. And these cracks concern differing value systems. And they become gaping holes, and the resultant fallout is is incendiary. You've got a first-time film writer called Tuka Shukur giving us a quite a gritty look at reality, at love and loss, power imbalance, and domestic violence. And that's what we were talking about, sort of, Jackie, that the situation in the real world hasn't gotten, gotten any better. And whatever we throw at it as, as an issue in society, it doesn't, it, it hasn't done the trick. And we, whatever needs to happen, it needs to keep happening. And we need different techniques because it shows no sign of relenting, does it? Um, no, um, it's a, no, it certainly doesn't. And there are campaigns that they run from time to time. Government uh, runs from time to time, but so far it really hasn't had an impact. In, in 2021, which was the, I don't have last year's figures, but, um, you know, 61 women in Australia were killed by a partner or former partner. And um, it's continuing. It's At the moment, I think it's one every nine days in, in Australia. Um, and one might say a man every every one man a month, um, but the, it's just too high for vulnerable women to be in this situation. Yeah, and it, it's it's interesting because in the program, which I don't read until afterwards, there is a note of that, uh, and it, it basically says exactly that. Today, I ask you to count your fellow audience members. I'm reading from the program from one to six. Every time you reach six, know that. One of each of those six is a survivor of domestic violence. It's obscene and unconscionable to think that in such a progressive country, such as Australia, we see the statistic. You know, I mean, and I suppose that's one of the reasons that I wanted to talk about it. Uh, look, it's a hard watch at times, and it's an appropriately hard watch. Uh, the the instincts of the first-time writer, Tuka Shakur, are strong. But as a piece of work, it needs significant tightening. It feels too drawn out. It was around about two and a quarter hours plus interval. Uh, and to me, 90 minutes would have would have served the piece well. The um, the actress, Celine Khoury, is the glue that binds the production together. She's accomplished in the lead, really is bringing light and shade to her portrayal of the 29-year-old Sahar who turns 30 in the production. Emmanuel Eos Machitas carries himself very well as Isaac. He's a, a wolf in sheep's clothing. I, I also appreciated Vivian Menendez as the kindly pharmacy customer, Daniel, who takes a, a shine to Sahar. Steffi Gill milks her scenes as Isaac's self-assured legal assistant, Bianca. And there's a 12-person cast, quite a, quite a bit of a mixed bag, actually. Some are more adept at their craft than others. The cavernous nature of the venue, this is not the first time I've mentioned this, means that some voices don't carry as well as they should. Now, that really is a problem in theatre. Uh, if you, You've got to allow for that uh, if you are an actor or, dare I say, choose another venue. That's easy for me to say because the cost of the venue obviously dictates where you can go. Look, the, the biggest beef, though, that I had with Love With No Remorse, certainly not the subject matter, it, it concerned the multitude of scene changes. 
I can honestly say I have never witnessed more scene changes in a play, and that frequency really needs addressing. Uh, changing the furniture and furnishings every few minutes became tiresome, and and to me it, it was an unnecessary distraction. There was music, and it went it faded to black, kind of thing. Look, it, it adds many unnecessary minutes to the running time. And I was thinking perhaps a video-based approach may have hit the mark more and, and you know, we then could have just moved on. But it, it does deal with important societal issues. Uh, the the director, I reckon, needed to find ways to rein in the production. But it, it is on at Meat Market Stables, if you haven't been there. Quite an interesting venue. There's a couple of meat, there's a meat market stables and then there's a bigger venue around the corner in North Melbourne called the Meat Market. So, Greg, have you ever been or not to, to the venue? I've been to the Meat Market a couple of times. Yeah, it's a small venue, intimate venue. I think you must have gone to the Meat Market's tables. Were you on the corner there? Is that, yeah, that, yeah that's the it Meat a, Market. It has a couple of um, theatres inside it, but yeah. Yeah, no, no. But, but what I was about to say to you, you're quite right, but around the corner, the meat the, there's another venue which is large, very large, and that's the Meat Market. And I remember... Uh, my, my own little uh, war story. I went along to attend a play and I was running re- really close to the bone and I ended up going to the wrong venue and missing the performance because, because I went to the wrong meat market. So don't be confused. This is meat market stables. Folks, I'm sorry, but we've run out of time. So we are going to pick this up again next Sunday. Greg, thanks so much for your involvement. And Peter Krauss, always a pleasure. And Jack, thank you. Terrific. Nice to have you on board. Folks, um, we will go to First on Film and, and, and Entertainment again next Sunday. Till next week, I bid you adieu. Farewell from the program.